1: The U.S.-China relationship is a critical one for many, many reasons. And it's a relationship that's really been tested here as of late. We've had a consulate in each country closed. Of course, the trade war continues. We wanted to take a deeper look into the relationship between the two countries and see where it could go from here. So we caught up with Dr. Miguel Glatzer. He is an associate professor of political science at LaSalle University. Really interesting conversation. Check it out. So let's start at the beginning. Overall, at this point in time, how would you describe the U.S.-China relationship?
0: It's very problematic on multiple levels and not just because of the current president of the United States. The problems predate uh, the Trump administration, but they have certainly gotten deeper during the Trump administration.
1: What would you say right now are the biggest problems between the two countries? A big one, certainly
0: one that predates the Trump administration, is American concern with intellectual property theft. So we have a a very strong trade relationship, very large trade relationship with China, uh, along with a very big financial uh, relationship as well. But one of the big problems in the trade relationship is this one of intellectual property theft where China has been stealing intellectual properties. So designs, ideas, mechanisms that come out of America's innovation machine. And that is one area where the U.S. excels. So when China steals this intellectual property, uh, it really represents a pretty serious economic loss for the U.S. It also violates the global rules on trade that China has subscribed to. So that's one major issue. Um, another issue that, that Trump has made a big deal of, but which most political scientists and economists don't see as such a major issue, is the deficit in trade. The fact that we buy more from China than we sell to China. In general, that's not a major issue to most economists. Um, Trump has made that an issue, right? And so... That's a that's a separate issue. There are other important issues beyond the economic realm. One has to do with the erosion of liberties in China. The increasing repression domestically. On a massive scale, China has incarcerated and turned uh, over a million Uyghurs. These are Muslim Chinese in the northwest of the country uh, for reeducation. And this is a massive loss of their rights. In addition, China has eroded freedoms in Hong Kong and has repressed uh, within China itself as well. So lots of, uh, lots of domestic problems with a more repressive China domestically under President Xi Jinping. And then externally, China has also been increasingly aggressive. Uh, the most famous case is, of course, the South China Sea, where China has asserted its right to control a massive area of ocean and the resources contained within it. This has created tensions with many of China's neighbors that border this ocean, the South the South China Sea. More recently, it's been aggressive with respect to India as well, in very, very high altitude skirmishes in the uh, Himalaya mountains. So it's certainly pushing its, its weight around more and violating international law and and acting aggressively even when there are peaceful mechanisms of dispute resolution. So it's a a pretty wide array of problems. And then um, another one, if we want to add to the list, is the fact that China has been meddling in the elections of a number of democracies. This includes Taiwan, this includes Australia, and increasingly it includes the US. So it's Borrowing if you will, from the Russian playbook and using social media in some of the other cases it's using illicit contributions to politicians to try to buy uh, influence and to and to influence elections overall so it's a it's a wider range of wide range of problems um, confronting the u s Chinese
1: relationship recently I know each country closed a consulate in the other country when it comes to the diplomatic escalation for lack of a better word, how big a deal is that? It's not really that
0: big a deal. China has of course the embassy in DC it has other consulates in San Francisco in Chicago in New York. So it's more of a, a signal of deep displeasure right it's a it's a, it's a signal of diplomatic displeasure. It's not a sign of health, but it's also not a major issue in the sense that U.S.-Chinese diplomatic relations can continue, right? There's still conversations, issues of processing of visas are not so critical at this point because there's much less travel due to COVID, uh, and that's a big part of what consulates do. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it's uh, substantively a major issue, um, it's, but it certainly signals a lot of displeasure. I would also add it's the reason the U.S. closed the consulate was supposedly because the consulate was home to some spying activities, and this administration, like administrations before it, has gotten increasingly irritated with spying activities, and it's starting to take more forceful action, and that's the that's the ostensive reason why why the consulate was closed. It'll be inconvenient for people who live in the Texas area and the the southern region who would have previously traveled to Houston if an interview was necessary for for visa processing. But for most people, the visa paperwork can simply be be sent to a different consulate.
1: It seems to me the relationship with the U.S. and China is interesting from the standpoint that obviously nobody wants war. So you kind of look at the financial aspect, but our economies are, in this global economy, our economies are are tied pretty tight. So is there only so much we can do without hurting ourselves? That's
0: true. If we try to hurt China economically, as the Trump administration has, has done with tariffs and restrictions on imports from China, we are in effect taxing American consumers, right, who will have less choice in what they can purchase or or they will pay more, right, uh, if they have to pay for the added cost of, of a tariff, or they would be selecting a product made elsewhere that might be, might be more expensive as a result. So certainly the fact that the economies are so tightly coupled, so intertwined, means that there would indeed be costs to the U.S. and to American consumers if the economic relationship were to deteriorate. It's also true that China buys a lot of U.S. treasuries, right? It buys a lot of U.S. debt. And there might be a concern, right, if, if China stopped doing so, that would be a way in which China could retaliate. Um, and also China, we need to remember, is, is indeed the world's second largest economy. It's an increasingly important market for many, many American firms. The profits of, of many of America's uh, big multinational firms uh, stem in no small measure from the sales that they make in, in China. So you're right decoupling the relationship would have costs. It's true that there are some substitutes in some areas for China. Uh, Low-cost manufacturing, for example, can now be done in many other countries, places like Vietnam and Indonesia, and that's starting to occur anyway. In other words, the cost of manufacturing very basic products in China is increasingly higher than doing so in some of its now poorer neighbors. So there's a bit of offshoring from China occurring anyway.
1: You mentioned the re-education camps with the, the Muslim Uyghurs. That is such a depressing story, but is there much the U.S. can do other than condemn it and put diplomatic pressure on them to, to stop?
0: It would be very important, I think, for the U.S. to make this a priority issue in uh, in human rights conversations globally but the fact of the matter is that this is indeed occurring within China's borders and it's very unlikely that China would would relent on this one could imagine and I would certainly hope from a moral perspective that there would be global outrage and and global action to condemn these massive human rights rights violations that are truly colossal in their scale but unless there were to be a really large multilateral coalition pressuring China economically there's very little that that I think the US can do and and even under those circumstances I think the chances that China would budge are are not that great they see this as a security issue from their perspective and in my view it's a misguided approach and it's an overblown concern about security in in northwest china but I think the leverage that the US has is larger with china in areas that are outside of China's territory.
1: We obviously have a presidential election coming up in November. It would appear President Trump is going to use tough on China as a hammer to his base. Do you expect any movement in this relationship, any big moves before November? Is there much that could happen between now and November? Where do you see it standing for the next few months here until November?
0: I'm not particularly... Optimistic at this point that there will be substantive change. I think the Trump. You're, you're absolutely right. The Trump administration is hoping that China bashing will be popular with its base, will help with the election. It's true that there has been some progress on trade issues. At least, certainly, we we, we hear less about complaints about the trade trade agreements uh, than than we did. I think it's unlikely that China will budge in the next few months on these. On these issues. China is playing the nationalist card at home. It's arguing that it's being treated unfairly by America, that there is uh, xenophobia against uh, the Chinese people. And that card plays pretty well. So the incentives for President Xi Jinping, Jinping to back down are are relatively small at this point.
1: Should we get a Joe Biden presidency if he were to defeat President Trump? Would you expect much change on the U.S.-China relationship? Would you see a window there for relatively? Because I feel like even though Joe Biden's a known entity and was President Obama's vice president, I feel like every new administration maybe has a window where they can try to, to change things, a breath of fresh air, a reset, if you will. Would you expect anything of that nature?
0: Yes. Yes, I would. I, I think some of these concerns that uh, the Trump administration has with China predate the Trump administration. The Obama administration was was concerned about uh, intellectual property theft, for example. But there are also significant opportunities for cooperation. And the largest one, in my view, is climate change. Both the U.S. and China have pretty significant interest in trying to address climate change, which, if left unabated, is likely to lead in future decades to the migrations of tens of millions of people, to huge global dislocations, to cities going underwater, even to war. In this area, China is investing a lot in green energy. It's a major producer of solar panels. It's doing a lot of research into green technologies. And I think a Biden administration would see that for this major global issue, arguably the largest issue facing the U.S. and the planet, cooperation with China is really essential. And so that might lead to a sort of polarization of policies with China. We would still have disputes with China on a whole range of issues, but we would also realize that both countries would benefit a lot from cooperation on, on climate change, for example. I think also... Some of the China bashing that has occurred, for example, calling the coronavirus the Wuhan flu, that would disappear. I think there would also be changes in visa policies that would make it easier for students from China to, to come to U.S. universities for there to be academic exchanges. There might be certainly a, a continuation of policing to make sure that there isn't spying going on in some of these labs, for example. But the blanket approach of trying to restrict access trying to, for example, consider restricting the access of 250 million Chinese who are members of the, of the Chinese Communist Party to the U.S. Those kinds of moves I don't see the Biden administration embracing.
1: And then let's talk a, a second Trump administration. What would you expect or is it really kind of hard to predict what we would see if uh, we see a second uh, term for President Trump? Well, President Trump is, is nothing but erratic, right? So he has
0: thrown a lot of predictions out the window. He changes his tune very, very frequently. He, In past months, in the early years of his administration, he praised President Xi Jinping a lot. He uh, shocked many in the foreign policy community and the human rights community by not being more forceful on the problems that the Uyghurs are facing. But I think he, he might realize that his attempts in his first administration to really rebalance trade with China haven't worked or would come in at too high a cost. So I could see him really shifting on the extent to which he made the trade dispute with China a central part of the agenda in his first administration. Uh, in fact, I think that that has started to fade even in the last few months, where we're not hearing so much about the trade issues with China. I think intellectual property theft is likely to remain a major issue and the attempts to bully other countries into, for example signing agreements that are really unfavorable for them, that I think is unlikely to be a major concern for Trump. He is rather isolationist in his instincts. He doesn't particularly care about how other countries are are faring. And that's, I think, a really big missed opportunity because where the U.S. could develop leverage with China is in assembling a large multilateral coalition of countries that would start to push back collectively against Chinese abuse. So there, I think if we had a second Trump administration, we would we would have a missed opportunity on that on that front.
1: And final question. I've started to hear some people talk about the U.S. and China heading towards a, a Cold War with what we saw with the US and the, the Soviet Union. I, I mean, as a novice, you know, mediocre radio guy, I find it tough to see that just because I come back, the economies are so kind of have to work together that uh, I don't know that you could see anything similar to what we saw with the US and the Soviets. Am I misreading? No, I think, I think you're
0: absolutely right. The, the two countries have a very, very deep uh, economic relationship China is also different from the Soviet Union in that it has a thriving economy that has grown at astonishing rates and is becoming ever more technologically sophisticated. It's also true that the world is very different from that during the Cold War. Countries aren't divided into pro-American and pro-Chinese camps. They tend to have deep relations with both countries take even an ally like Australia, right, a very, very close US ally, but its exports to China are fundamental to Australia's economic success. The world is really very, very different from the position that it found itself during the Cold War. To some degree, I think we are closer to the pre-World War I era. And I'm not predicting another world war between between China and the US by, by any stretch. But I use that example to argue that there have been periods where there have been very close economic relations between countries, sort of open open global economies, if you will, uh, that have then shut down, right, that have then led to more inward-looking economic stances and uh, a closing of borders. And that's certainly what happened globally, particularly after the Great Depression. There was a, a move away from globalization. There's a risk with the second Trump administration that there might be this attempt to uh, slow down and reverse the economic integration with China. So I think in some ways that early 20th century history of a move away from close, a move away from what we might call globalization 1.0 is perhaps uh, a more apt metaphor, even if a troubled one, than, than the Cold War metaphor.